Welcome to KCADV Certification Series. You are listening to Module 4. And for future attachments and downloads, you can go to certification.kcadv.org forward slash Moodle. Hi, you all. Thank you so much for joining today. This is KCADV's Module 4, Children, Teens, and Parenting, Working with Families Experiencing Domestic Violence. And I have Christy Adams here with me today. And so we're going to have a, um, a interesting and fascinating conversation. I think it's something that we all could hone in on when we're working with youth and children. I think so many folks kind of go into this work knowing that we're working with the primary victim, which is often, you know, the adult person in the in the situation. And so we want to make sure we don't forget our littles and that we have some skill around that and how we can kind of work with the family as a unit. And I think there's always some conversation around that. So hi, Christy. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. You are most welcome. You've been doing this for a long time. You've been doing KCADV certification for a long time, and you've been doing this work for a long time. Very long time. I love it, though. I love the littles. Yeah, you do. You know, whenever we start struggling at Greenhouse 17, we're like, oh, you know, we need to probably call Christy and sort of brainstorm with her a little bit and um, see what we're doing wrong or if we can come up with a different idea. So it's good to have you. I think the plan for today in the modules, we're going to kind of break it up into two different sections. And one, if it's okay with you, we're going to kind of do a larger overview. And then we're going to maybe get in the second part into a little grittierness of, you know, when things pop up in our programs, whether it's shelter or non-residential, we'll probably focus a little more on shelter or non-residential. How do we deal with certain situations and how can we sort of support our programming in the best way to kind of help adults and kids? But in a larger phase, I think just to get everybody on board, can we talk a little bit about the developmental stages of kids? I think it's something that if we weren't sort of trained on this or weren't aware, we see a lot of parents sometimes that don't know, you know, what the capabilities and what kids should be doing at certain ages. And I think we can be guilty of that too as advocates and sort of put too much pressure or or on kids or have unrealistic expectations. So if we can do that, that would be Great. I'm turning developmental stages over to you. I know it's a big subject. <laughs> it is a big subject. And I actually like to think of it as it's their work. And growing up is hard work. And we don't always think about that. And you're right. Developmental stages are not taught cross curriculums. I was always amazed. My husband is a teacher and has never had a class in developmental stages. So it is important. I have been doing this for a long time. And when I would go and I'd, people would want to know, what are all these effects of domestic violence on children? I would say, you know, we're not going to, I can't get, I'm not going to give you a list because you can Google trauma. You can Google trauma symptoms and see how that comes about. But we really don't know or understand children unless we know kind of their normal development, what they've gone through, how were they maybe before they entered this, or what are some of the kind of commonalities of growing up that they have that framework, isn't it? You know, just sort of that foundation. And then you can kind of look at each kid, you know, uniquely. I know when we were talking about this the other day, sort of preparing for it, you said, you know, we really have to kind of know the child before we start, you know, what is their normal, like what's going on with them. So I, I love the framework concept. Absolutely. And before I start, I want to just say one more thing. It was funny hearing you say, you know, when we're doing something wrong or, you know, think we do something wrong. What can we do with kids? But I think the number one thing we can do with kids is just be present and showing up. 
even as adults, when we interact with each other, how many of us would say we are 100 percent present all of the time? And kids know they expect that. And so just being there and noticing them can be make a huge difference. But real quickly, in just going through kind of what is that hard work that kids have, starting with those infants, those itty bitties, they have one job. Their job is to learn to trust in the world. And they do that by different things. You know, babies, when they have a need, they cry. So if they're hungry and they cry and they have first time parents, the parents, when they're crying, they may try to change their diaper. You know, they're going to try all these things to figure out what that need is. But when that need gets met, then they stop crying and they're good until they have another need. And then they cry and then that need gets met. And then that cycle keeps going. And that's what allows children to build that trust cycle. And that's their number one job. And then as they get a little older, going from infants to toddlers, it's really to begin to explore the world around them. So infants do that by once their vision is fully capable, looking around, they hear the sounds around them. But as they start becoming more mobile, they're exploring around themselves. But then they get into toddlers, which happen to be my favorite. Those two to four year olds. They're explorers, aren't they? They are explorers. They come with their own mind, their own creativity. But their job is to learn to become independent and to learn to express themselves in healthy ways because their language is developing. They're growing more. And when we talk later about how does the violence come in and interrupt these normal developmental patterns, you'll be able to see kind of where it blocks some of this or just impedes that growing forward. The other thing I would say about toddlers and development is toddlers and adolescents are kind of the same. Their job is to become more independent just in different ways. They also, toddlers, start to learn to explore the world around them. They're starting to learn a little bit more that they exist outside that parent. Right. And then they move on to school. And those five to seven-year-olds of early school, their job is to learn to play with others. So they've come outside of that family unit. While even though they may have siblings, now they're outside. There are other people in the world. And to learn how their behavior affects others, how others feel, and then to develop themselves as separate from that family unit. Because, again, that may be when they're going to school for the first time. Sometimes they're in childcare um, or early school programs, but at kindergarten, they're really their person. And then we go to kind of that older school age, middle school age. And in development, it's broken down a little bit bigger. It's like 8 to 12, which if you know an 8-year-old and a 12-year-old can be completely different, but they can also be similar. But that's where they start to learn to accept themselves and others and how to feel good about their abilities because they had to learn it a little bit. What are they good at? How are they learning to read? How are they learning to add? And how do they become close to and trust children of the same sex? That's where they're building their friend cohorts. I have an 11-year-old daughter and I think about, we call them the gaggle of friends or the posse of ballerinas and how they've naturally developed around each other because they're around each other so much. You know, in school, there's recess and times to do that, but when they've been in ballet, they spend so much of their outside time together. You just watch how they navigate the world and learn from each other. I love the idea of their, the world is starting to expand, right? Mm-hmm. So just listening to you, you know, from, from very, you know, small and the littles, you know, just sort of through our senses, right? Through, through touch and, and visual and, 
and having just our basic needs met. You know, I'm hungry, I'm sleepy, you know, I need care. And then just sort of how we begin to sort of see this exploration and and not to as much go into it at this moment, because I know we will later, but I think that that can cause a lot of stress for parents, right? Of, of how much do you let to explore and do it safely? You know, so we don't want to be the hovering helicopter, right? That's sort of the you know, the uh, thing criticism, right? right? Mm-hmm. Over. But at the same time, we want to protect. And you've got people that are very vigilant to protect at this moment. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. So, yeah, you have those, I guess, two types of parenting. People like to talk about the helicopter parents who are there for everything. And then you have the free range parents who, you know, go explore make your mistakes. And I think there's a happy medium to that. I always tell my kids, because I would be probably closer to that helicopter parent, they would say, but my job is to help them. Their job is to make mistakes in life because we learn and grow from them. And businesses are trying to capture that mentality as well to move us from that fixed mindset of saying you're smart, you're athletic or whatever, to how do we grow forward? You know, we learn from our mistakes instead of telling a child they're smart. You know, I like how you studied for that test. I like how you tried really hard to broaden it because our job is to make sure they do make mistakes and learn from them, but they don't make the big mistakes. That's interesting. So we're really not trying to raise perfect people because we really can't be perfect. Right. But really get that critical thinking going. Right. So so what did we take away and what can we do next time? Absolutely. And then we move to those 13 to 18 year olds. And it's funny when I train, I'm like, how many people really like those middle schoolers or these 13, 14, 15 year olds? And the too big for your britches bunch. Is that, that is my them. mother would say? The too big for your britches bunch. Yeah. yeah. And people are like, oh no. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. And again, this is this piece is my own thought. But you know, kids really need good, strong academic elementary because that's where we're learning to read and write and navigate. And they need really good, strong educational high school because they're getting prepped for college. But those middle years, it's a lot of development stuff going on. And they need to know how to handle that socially, emotionally. Lots going on. I mean, talk about development. Think of everything that their bodies are going through and changing. And so part of their job in all of that mass confusion of emotions and development and social, their job is to develop a healthy self-image. And think about how hard that is in just a normal environment. And I know we're going to talk about this a little bit later about all the ways that violence comes in again into these things. Then this is where they also start to gain that identity in their peer group. You know, they, they felt each other out. They've been that posse of ballerinas, but where did they fit in? What is their piece that they're adding and bringing to that group? And then to become further independent of their family. When we're talking about those 16, 17, 18 year olds, they're learning to drive. They may get a job. They're managing money. The 18 year olds may be going off to school. And so, again, just like the job of the toddler is to become independent from that family unit and learn to explore and they may eat dirt. (laughs) They're looking at the things around them. The teenager is pulling further away from the family to become that that individual self? Where do they fit in the world now? Right. And then the later, the 18 through 21, because ironically, why they don't classify as children, they're still young. You know, our brains do not fully develop or have that concrete closing until 26. And so, you know, think about all the things we put on those 18 
to, uh, before 26 year olds and ask them to make these rational choices or thought process, but they're not fully developed yet. And so that this is where they begin to make those important decisions. They're making a lot of decisions away from their parents. I feel like I use my children a lot, but again, we learn on the job. So being a parent and my son, when he turned 18, literally computers are really good. The day he turned 18, he got kicked out of our um, health chart where we could see everything about him. And the doctor said, you can add him back in, but you now have your own chart. You're 18. And his first checkup outside of that piece with mom or dad being present, he was there five minutes before we got a phone call. Do I want this shot? Do I need this? You know, so they're still unsure and they need to know that they can navigate life, but they have that security to come back to. I think it's one of the, you know, when we were, um, when I was doing a little reading on this and, and I don't know if we're going to talk about ACE scores at all in, in, in this conversation, but certainly resiliency, you know, you begin, I think also to start seeing kids and youth picking up folks that they can trust. I love that you sort of started the conversation with trust. And it was a conversation we had had at a, at another module thing about the importance of building trust and relationship with adults, but certainly with kids, because they need to know who they can kind of come back to and trust. So if it's not parent to call back and go, Hey, do I need this shot? Or, Hey, I need someone to come support me in this, or I've got a big decision that youth start to begin to find out who those teachers and mentors and things are as well. And I think our programs can be really critical pieces in this for, for our kids that kind of, that come in, you know, they need sounding boards, I would imagine to kind of bounce off ideas and, and what they're thinking. And they're not going to do that if they don't trust us. Absolutely. And I think, you know, as hard as this, you know, cause again, more of that helicopter parent. But I think any of us, parents, friends, service providers, we all play a piece of a puzzle in that child's life. I mean, obviously some pieces are larger than others, but we're still pieces and they need all of those pieces to become their full picture. They're going to have different needs at different stages. And so the number one thing that helps kids, and I use a quote, and I think I've used it from like day one of working with kids and Domestic violence is from Abraham Maslow, who says only a child who feels safe can grow forward healthily. Oh, it's a beautiful. Um, We know kids are still going to grow up and grow taller and wider or whichever way physically they're going to grow. But to feel secure enough to do those other jobs that they need to do, they need to feel safe to do that. And the number one thing for children and safety is consistency. And that can be hard. It can be hard for first time parents to be consistent because you don't know what you're doing um, until you, you learn. So schools are the most safe place for kids. It's been interesting in the length of time I've done this work because saying that sometimes doesn't feel as safe as it used to um, with school shootings or different things that have happened at school. But the way school is structured prior to COVID, it was the safest place. Kids knew what time their bus came. Kids knew what time math was. They would know when lunch is. They know when recesses, they know when reading circle or circle time, and they learn to follow this pattern. And that feels very safe to them when things happen like they should. Now, schools can't always um, do that. You know, you can't say, okay, at 1015 today, we're going to have a fire drill because that's not the purpose of the fire drill. But as much as we can in schools, we, we do do that. And I think that's one thing shelters can take on or even other programs like my own, who, while not a shelter program, we still offer services and different things of 
when we can, do we make it consistent? I'm glad you brought up COVID, even though I don't think we should hone in on it much because this module, I hope, will live longer yes. than the reality <laughs> of the pandemic. But I think it's a good example of when things come up that throw disruptions in the into the schedule, into the consistency. Certainly pandemic COVID has done that with schools. Mm-hmm. And that is a time, I think, where shelter programs really need to go. We're going to have some kickback on this or we can have some unsettling or some anxiety, you know, inducing things for our kids just because of the ritual of Mm -hmm. things has changed. And so just to get ahead of that a little bit, again, I think the um, oftentimes the adults are the ones that are more verbal and sort of speak about things. And we talk about stress and anxiety and all that due to the pandemic and not being at, you know, being at work and having to balance childcare and stuff. But I don't know that we necessarily always look at how that impacts the children. Maybe we, maybe we do. I'm sure many do, but I don't know. I think we have a tendency to think that kids will just go along with the flow, right? If mom's okay, kids are okay. If we just kind of go with the flow and we really need to probably be thoughtful to go, okay, if we're not going to schools, then we need to have our consistency here at shelter at home or whatever, whatever could be that disruption in their daily schedule. Yeah, And I think um, we've seen that with the shift and with COVID and because I'm in Jefferson County and at this point still not back in school, we still see a difference on how kids are acting when schools shut down and schools went to, okay, we're going to be online, log in, get your assignments, do that. Kids were a little bit lost, but now when they went into the school year with intentionality, kids still know there's a schedule to follow now. Yeah. They didn't have that. I think that rhythms are ended. important. I think rhythms are really Absolutely. important. Absolutely. Yeah. Rhythm plays an underlying piece of all of our lives. If you even look historical, just where music plays a part and there's that underlying just rhythm. Um, you see a lot of stuff or a lot of things in healing now and trauma and re- talking about, you know, there's some humming or some different things that can calm and soothe. But that pace, when we get off pace, or off step, then that's when our brain is just like, hmm. When I do this training in person, I do a piece where I ask people to count to three and I ask adults and they look at me like I have three heads because it's like, that's a task I've been able to do for a while. And so then I have them and a partner count to three alternating and they do it so easily. And then I stop them and I ask them to, instead of saying one, to clap and still alternate. And when I say go, you think they'd all lost their minds. Like they couldn't count anymore. They're having to direct each other. Clapping even becomes difficult. And we do that through a series. But that one is the hardest because I've disrupted that pattern for them. And that's kind of what kids who are in trauma or anyone in trauma, our brains don't always switch as quickly as we would want them to. Because again, in the second example, I'm still asking to count to three. But before where it was a number, number, number that we're comfortable with over and over, now we had action number, number, action number, number. And we can't do that, even in a healthy brain. So patterns, consistency are the safest um, place for kids. I find that really fascinating. You know, I I sort of commend myself, you know, this is sort of that... (laughs) I'm a great person, but no, I sort of commend myself of, of doing okay in the chaos, you know? And I think we sometimes relish that in our programs that we can respond to a crisis. We Mm -hmm. can respond to a new family coming in. We can respond to somebody sort of having a, you know, 
a moment of a meltdown or a breakdown or a medical emergency or whatever those things are. But sometimes I'm curious if we celebrate that to the point of forgetting the importance of the regular of the rhythm of the house. Like, like you want to sort of cocoon the rest of the house, the shelter, the program from the chaos. Staff need to be able to respond to the crisis and chaos, but the rest of the group sort of needs to cocoon from that because it sets them all off into a, a frenzied state. And that's what we're trying to get away from, you know? And I think sometimes we get frustrated because we'll kind of go, well, you're in a domestic violence shelter. So, you know, we got to make room for this new family coming in or we got to like, like, this was you three weeks ago. So we all need to be there, you know, in that space. And I do think emotionally or, you know, philosophically that's true, but I don't know. I wonder if sometimes we just put too much on our survivors and families and kids that are in shelter. Just, I don't know. I I, I think getting that daily rhythm, I think is so important. And I think we disrupt it a lot. Well, in using that example, I'd never thought of it that way. I think it is easier for the staff, though, because we're checking off lists because we get into that rhythm. If this happens, I need to do this. I need to do this. Did we do this? Where if someone's just on the outside watching, they don't have that list to go by. That's um, right. So right. I've never thought of that until you yeah, gave so that looking example. In, it looks sort of insane. Mm, interesting. But talking about consistency being safe, you know, outcomes for children will be better for children who are securely attached. So if we go back to that very beginning of that infant who's learned to trust and they form that attachment, that sets children up to feel safe. So thinking about at the first point, or not the first point, because the first point violence can interfere with a child's development is in utero. We can talk about that in a minute. But if a parent is not responding to that child's needs, even as an infant, they're going to stop crying when they have a need met. And then how do we know that child has a need? Um, so our outcomes are better for children who are securely attached. And that means that that parent or caregiver is attuned and responsive to the child's needs. And, and again, that trust cycle shows us the best piece of that when they can help and manage feelings for their children. So if we think about, again, where violence could come into play there, if a mom can't be emotionally present for her own self, you know, how is that done for the kids? Sometimes she can do it better for the kids because, again, she wants to be present for them, shelter them or cocoon them as the word you used from what's going on. When they're securely attached, it provides this base for them to go out from. We're going to talk about the circle of security a little bit later. So we're going to hear these terms again of secure base. But who is sending them out and encouraging them to go out into the world? And that may not always happen when violence is present. I have met survivors who have very young children and would keep their children in car seats for a lot of time. And it was out of safety. If they had to flee, they could pick up that car seat and go. Because I don't know about you, if I had in a crisis to pick up my child quickly and put them in a five point harness, it was not going to happen that quick. So they would keep them there. And there was not that piece of encouraging them to be crawling or walking and then they need that safe place to come back to, which, again, we'll focus on, I know, a little bit later 
as well. I see that a little bit in shelter programs to the car seat piece. And I think sometimes it's even a, in that regard, it's different, right? So, you know, we have, you know, this large building, you know, at least when you're in your home or your apartment, you can usually sort of contain, you can put a baby gate up here or, you know, a kid can only go so far. We have an 18,000 square foot building. This kid can get far fast. And so you'll often see kids in strollers or car seats for an inordinately long amount of time. And I think it's for safety, but it's like, you know, mom's got other things to do. She's cooking breakfast. She's doing whatever, getting the other kids ready for school. And so this other one gets sort of placed in this, you know, car seat. And I think, again, it's for safety and practicality, but it's too long. And then you add in that third piece of the housekeeping is not maybe to what they want. Yeah, because they don't have control you over. You definitely say that, Christy. <laughs> but yes. they don't have control over an 18,000 square foot piece. And so, yes, it becomes this routine to just keep them close, but movable pretty quickly. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about just in continuing, you know, we did that hard work of growing up, but where does violence come in? And there are essentially four, I used to say there's four ways. Some people will break out the last one into two pieces that children are exposed to violence. And I guess I should say, or take this opportunity to say, language to me is very important in how we use wording with kids, but also how we talk about kids. So in years of doing this work early on, people used to call it children who witness violence. And that was used for a long time. It's still used today, but there's preferential language to use at one point to change that from children who witness violence to children exposed to batterers for two very big reasons. Um, the first being changing the witnessing to who exposed because it took witnessing, made it passive. Seeming if kids witnessed this, they were not impacted in any way, shape or form. And we know they are. So how do we make that more active? But then also taking out the word violence and putting in batterer, put the accountability on the person who was doing the harm. So it wasn't as general. It made it way more specific. But there are ways that children are exposed to violence. The two most natural, and when I ask people, they're the seeing it and the hearing it. The easiest to think about. Children are either physically present in the room or they can hear it from somewhere else. If you ask children, you know, do you, did you know what was going on or tell me what went on in your home? A lot of times they can tell you. A lot of times moms do not know or think that children have been exposed, but they have. And some people will say, well, then she's a bad parent if she didn't know. Well, no, she may be, that may be one self-preservation for her that, oh my gosh, I've been through this horrible thing, but if it, I would never let it impact or want it to impact my kids. The other is she just, she may not be aware. She's been so busy surviving and taking kind of the brunt of the incident that she doesn't know what the kids are being exposed to. And there is some research that says that the hearing part is more scary for kids because of that thing that we value about children, their imaginations. If they're in the room when it's happening, it's a scary thing to see that happen but they have a little bit more control because they can see what's going on. If they are hearing it, those little imaginations work over time. And they, if, especially if they've already seen it before, they can only imagine. So if they hear this huge bump on a wall, was that a book thrown? Was that mom? And they just start working it over time. It can get time. bigger than maybe what it is. Maybe what it is. 
Another way is they were told about it after it happened or they've witnessed the aftermath. So maybe they weren't there when it happened. They were in school and they come home and they see broken furniture or they come home to the police or they have a relative pick them up from school and take them to a hospital or a court where mom might be. And then there is the experiencing the direct harm. Sometimes kids are hurt and no one intended to hurt that kid, but maybe mom was hurt holding the baby and he went to hit her and he missed her and hit the baby. So there can be unintended consequences. He may have intended to hit the baby either way, but they're in that middle and getting hurt. And then there's one that children are actually used as the tool of the perpetrator. So kids, if they're on visitation and they're with the perpetrator, he's like, where's mom? Who's she with? What's she doing? Um, He may use the kids to hurt mom. He may um, have the kids spy on mom. So he's, they're used as his tool. I didn't mean to be silent on that. It's just so horrific. It is so horrific. (laughs) And we hear those stories all the time of, you know, kids being just placed in the middle of situations by the abusive partner. And it's something that I always, you know, we do safety plans with people. What's precious to you? That's what I always ask when I'm safety planning people. What is precious to you? Because that's what they're going to hurt. And kids, right? Number one. And Mm -hmm. so it often, um, it often sort of plays out that way. So yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to pause on that. It just, I was processing that. (laughs) It was terrible, Christy. You know, (laughs) you talk about kids and I used to tell people what I do and there's times you should just say you work at Target because, and there seems to be this piece of, oh, you work with these women who get hurt, but oh, those poor, poor children. And in either case, They still are individuals first. Kids are still kids first who experience things they should never have had to experience, but they're still kids. And they come with that nurture and inquisitiveness and curiosity, and they're still going to be there. But going back to kids being involved, you know, 40 in 40 to 75 percent of families where DV occurs, children are experiencing physical abuse as well. It's a huge number when we think of all the itty bitties that are out there. And then the studies in the U.S. have actually shown that children at homes with DV are more at risk for being sexually abused as well. And, you know, stats have changed through the years. I am not a huge person that says, oh, we should know the stat of everything. But there are stats that stand out um, when we think about how many kids witness a domestic violence a year, people have gone through 3 million, 10 million, 25 million, but then use a stat that came out in research in 2010 that said 10%, not 2010, 2002, that say 10% of children in domestic violence homes have been forced to participate in the sexual assault of their mother. And then you think of 10% of 25 million, that's huge of the pieces and where they play in all of this. Children hold a big part. Many times they are the reasons people choose to leave because it's like, okay, they need one parent. That's okay. But then they may also be the reason that people choose to stay because maybe financial, it may be they need this other person. So they play a really big part in this whole dynamic. And when we go back to, they learn what's around them. So uh, perpetrators manipulate to, for that power and control and survivors manipulate to stay alive. So what are kids learning? They're learning how to manipulate 
but they don't really know that they're using it for good or bad, but they've learned this skill surviving, to, to right? survive. We're surviving. And on that same note too, I think when you're talking about, is that a reason for people to, you know, leave situations because they're so wanting to protect their kids and they need to get out of that situation, but it might be the same reasons that they're staying. You also, if you start to leave and you have to deal with courts talking about custody and visitation, you know, non-offending parent is often apt to stay because they want to make sure that they're in the house to protect the kids. Mm-hmm. Where if you're going on every weekend or joint custody or However, that works. You're not there to protect the children. And so the fear of that visitation is scary. And the courts haven't really caught up with this logic just because the children haven't been maybe overtly physically assaulted. They are experiencing abuse either due to exposure or we're just not reporting what's really happening. You know, so I think that's just a whole nother I don't know, a whole nother area that needs to be. That's another module. That's another (laughs) module. How courts respond to um, domestic violence cases when in regards to children. Absolutely. And you can talk about kids all day long in the many facets because they're all so different. Just just like we all are as human beings. But throw in, they're at a time where they're learning and growing and coming into their own. It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Okay. We'll get back to this. Module then. <laughs> All right. All right. So again, look, going back to that growing up yeah. being hard work, when that violence comes in, you know, we naturally can think about how it disrupted that infant and mom not being present to nurture, or, um, but it can lead to some, some issues or learning for children. So they have that disruptive sense of their trust in the caregiver. So they don't trust that person's going to help them because they didn't come because mom, maybe mom couldn't respond. That's what they've learned. They have a disrupted sense of their own autonomy because again, we've talked about they're not being encouraged to go out on their own, whether toddlers or teens. We um, don't have the ballerina posse. We don't have the posse and we're staying close to mom in case she has to flee or we're staying close to mom out of concern. They carry these fears that maybe mom or dad or someone's going to be hurt because they see a lot of hurt going on. And because they're in that stage, they have imagination, they have creativity, and they kind of use third parties to understand things that sometimes it's going to be hard for them to distinguish reality from fantasy because they're still trying to figure that out in life. And the bigger piece that may happen to especially younger children is they may lose skills they've already gained. So it would not be uncommon to see, you know, a four or five year old come into shelter and mom say, I'm really confused because they're wetting the bed and they haven't done that for like, they've been potty trained for two years. What's going on? So they may be, they may regress back to previous stages. They may feel babyish and helpless When they're that school age and adolescence, they don't feel as old as they think they should feel. Uh, They have a disruptive sense of their competence and independence because, again, not going out. And then they may start to have risky behaviors to try to deal with all of this. And then they also may retreat into a fantasy world for that self-preservation. If I can think these things or I can be here, then things might be a little bit better. And again, when being in a home where violence is and talk about learning, they may start to bully. It's always been very interesting to me. We always talk about children who've been in homes where there's domestic violence. 
and we've talked about dating violence and we talk about domestic violence, but we never talk about sibling abuse or uh, and what that looks like, because sometimes we generalize it. You know, if you have this one child who is these two boys and they're just going at it, you know, it's a very common thing in society to say, well, boys will be boys or that's, you know, they're brothers. <laughs> that's how brothers act. But where do we watch it to see where that line gets crossed into abuse? Because they've learned how to hurt people for power and control that just by sense, simply watching. Yeah. I mean, we're trying to maintain some sort of control. So you can see sometimes, I don't know if this is true, Christy, so correct me. I see sometimes girls might do some internal control pieces, mm -hmm. right? So there might be some self-harm or there might be, um, you know, whether that's through diet or cutting or those types of pieces. And I might see boys act out a little bit to control, which yes. could take place on siblings. Yeah. Girls tend to internalize a little bit more. Um, and so we never know, though, how things are going to going to appear. But then some reason when they do appear, we just generalize it as kids. You know, I think about even dating violence and you know, I've worked with kids as young as sixth grade before who you know, I, I like you, you like me, but they're getting hurt. But then it was being just kind of pushed off as, you know, well, he's picking on her. He must really like her. It's a phase. Yeah. yeah. So where do we bring in that piece of, yes, this is normal kind of behavior, where does it cross the line of being violent? And so we tend to diminish it in children's behaviors a little bit more. Now, it is important, can't say, oh, this child's a perpetrator, because they're learning these behaviors. They are acting out what they are seeing and don't always have a way to kind of rationalize it because that's what they've learned. But it might be our time to take notice, yes. take a pause, take notice, look at the behavior and maybe try to intervene in a, in a healthy way, not a, not a discount and isolate, right? Right. Bad, bad kid, you know, but we do that, right? This oh. kid's acting up in school. We got to kick this kid out of school. This kid's not. And so instead that's the kid that we need to kind of reach out and, and really do some more work with. Yeah. I, um, I hate, personally, that term, they're a bad child. And I think the other thing we have to learn to do better is how we distinguish and talk about people from their behavior. So they're not a bad kid or a bad child. That behavior is bad. And it becomes especially important when working with kids who have been exposed to domestic violence or batterers, because a lot of times that can be their dad. And so kids get in this push and pull of, they hate what dad is doing, but it's dad. We're told we should love our dad. And so they have this inner conflict where if we could better label the behavior of saying it is completely okay to love your dad, he is your dad, and it is completely okay to hate that he hits your mom. And I think that's where words come into play, right? You were mm -hmm. talking about that earlier. And for the sake of this conversation, we're using a lot of perpetrator type conversations, but really we need to mimic that conversation. This is this kid's dad, yeah. you know, or mom. So, so we need to be thoughtful to use the language that the child's using because it's a, com it's a complex relationship. Absolutely. You know, I've met kids who will call their dad by their first name and say, you know, Bill hit my mom and I may know that that's dad. But there's a reason that child's calling him Bill and not dad, trying to separate from that relationship. It's easier to be mad at Bill than dad. Yes. And so we have to be really respectful of their language. So knowing how how trauma then can kind of 
impact the developmental stages, right? And so, and knowing from what you had said earlier that, you know, all kids sort of are, you know, they're unique and they're different and they experience things different. And, and I stole it from you, but I think I used the word of, you need to find out what the kid's normal is, mm -hmm. right? So what is it that we should be, you know, looking for when kids are coming into our program? Like, is there something that we should be paying attention to? So we're not alarmist and we're not like, oh my gosh, you know, like we've got a big problem here, but just sort of beginning to pay attention. So we know the best way to support or, or intervene or glad you're here and we should be okay now. I think that being present and taking everything as a piece, again, of a puzzle and putting it together, you know, I always flash back to early on when I started working in shelter and I got there and they're like, oh, you should meet this kid. We're really concerned. We think they've been abused because all they do is bite people. And so I go and meet the child and like the child is like two, two and a half and they have, you know, they're getting teeth and they don't know what to do with these teeth yet. And so is it they've been hurt or is it that they are they getting bite. teeth? How do we balance that and not overreact? But we keep that in our thought like, oh, yeah, he's biting. And how do we watch them navigate the day? You know, you talked about the boys who act out or um, and kids who act out. They get a lot of attention and we're they're the ones we typically will gravitate towards or think, how do we help them? But who's going to recognize that child who suddenly started getting straight A's, won't talk. They're very compliant. But that wasn't them before. But if they think if everything's good, then it'll make things better. So we just have to kind of know what they were like. So doing a history on a child can be very important. Tell me about your child. Tell me about your child growing up. Ask when developmental stages were hit. Access to ages and stages, which is a developmental tool, can be really handy because it'll tell you if they're on track developmentally. But asking those questions, even back to what was um, the child's birth like? Uh, you know, what was it like for mom? Did the child have to stay in the hospital longer than mom? And kind of getting that whole piece of that child instead of snapshots. Because when they walk through our doors in shelter, it's a snapshot of their time. Mm -hmm. It is not their whole story. And so just keep being present and addressing things when they come up and working with mom. That would be the biggest piece I would say is we have to remember not to triangulate mom. Or to get her out of the picture. Because as advocates, we are happy, smiley. I would give kids stickers and toys and all kinds of things. But they have a mom. So we have to remember to ask her. You know, if I want to give a child something, you know, let's ask mom. I learned early on not to say, go ask your mom. Because then that child comes back and says, yes. And maybe they never did ask mom. Or we make mom be the bad person. <laughs> we right? make mom be mom the bad person. Mom always says no. Mom says no. So how do we get to know mom's parenting style? while in shelter and how do we support her in that because we don't want to make her be the bad guy because she's walking in those shoes and hopefully will be in that child's life way longer than we ever will so our takeaway i think just to sort of wrap this piece up and then we're going to come into part two but consistency critically important mm -hmm. finding out what what that family dynamic is like what they've already been doing getting to know that kid right mm -hmm. and what their normal is knowing that you know children who've been exposed to trauma and battering 
are going to display some pieces, but we need to start collecting that information and working with mom to do that. Building trust and getting really sort of tuned in. It's advocates' responsibility to know the developmental stages of kids, right? Like, so we need to be brushing up on this. It's not, you know, we need to continually evolve in our work and do our homework. It's not like you go through certification or you get hired and you get trained and now you have all the knowledge that you would ever need for the rest of your life, right? You have to continually hone in on this practice if you're going to show up fully for your families that you're working with. Any last little thoughts before we close? I think just that piece you just said, you know, never be afraid, especially if you're a new advocate. You know, I joke, I should apologize probably to the first 200 people I worked with because I was so new. And I think, you know, even people today ask me, you know, what makes you really good in doing this? And I think it's every woman, man and child I've worked with and bringing their stories into my work versus, you know, this textbook tells me everything because we all know social work, counseling, there's not a DV class. And so how do we learn as we go, but bring their stories with them? Great. Thank you, Christy, so much. Thank you.